Hello, this is Scott Winnell with TW Now. Welcome back to our regular viewers and welcome to our new viewers. Plastic pollution, air pollution, water pollution, light pollution, noise pollution, species population reduction and extinction, farm runoff, manufacturing waste, human waste. There are so many threats to the environment today. We see headlines every week highlighting environmental problems, including the BBC article on the screen right now, highlighting multiple crises being faced by the environment around us. And when it comes to the environment, there seem to be multiple culprits to blame. Global climate change is one that we see most often, but we also hear about wars, destructive agricultural practices, overuse of chemicals and pesticides, growing urbanization, and even more. Some experts have even claimed that certain elements of the environment may soon disappear. Is this all hype or is there truth to the dire warnings? Will the environment die? What can be done to stop the apparent declines? Today's returning guests know this topic well and will share their insights and provide some helpful answers, including insights to answers found in the Bible. I would like to Welcome back to the program today, Mr. Stuart Wahavich. Mr. Wahavich is a Tomorrow's World presenter and writer who has written and spoken on this topic many times before. He holds a degree in geographic information systems and performs some early analyses on data derived from the Earth Resources Technology Satellite, LANDAST 1 and 2. Mr. Wahavich is a minister and he is joining us via Skype from Alberta, Canada. Mr. Wallace Smith, welcome back to you as well, sir. Mr. Smith is a Tomorrow's World presenter and science writer for Tomorrow's World magazine. His primary training and experience base is in the field of mathematics. Mr. Smith is also a minister. Gentlemen, welcome back to you both. And I am looking forward to the discussion today. Uh, before we do that, though, if you have questions as we carry out our discussion, please feel free to message us and we'll do our best to address some of your questions. Also, please be sure to subscribe, like, or share today's program. All right, Mr. Wahavich, let's start out with you as we talk about the death of the environment today. What are some of the most pressing environmental issues that we are witnessing today? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I think there's a number of them, of course, and we could just uh, maybe spend the program listing them. <laughs> but to me, the most serious uh, issue uh, that the Earth faces is that which deals with the oceans. Uh, far more so than climate. Uh, the oceans are immediate to us and uh, the uh, destructive um, forces that have been at play over the past years have uh, brought about a massive reduction in the amount of fish uh, on some of the major fishing grounds, whether it's the Grand Banks off eastern North America or whether it's the uh, South China Sea, both areas that have been relied upon by millions of people. Uh, the um, uh, catastrophic drop in, in fish stocks on eastern North America uh, in the 1990s um, and uh, also the major drop in the South China Sea uh, certainly I think uh, rate as immediate problems and uh, undoubtedly are the result of human activity uh, in the manner in which fishing has been done. Well, let me ask you just real quickly, you mentioned that manner can you describe a little bit why these fishing stocks are dropping in such record numbers? Yes, well, for, I'll take you back just for a second to 1497 when uh, the British, uh, or uh, from Genoa, but he was really working for the British, uh, John Cabot 
1497, put a note in his uh, log that uh, when he hit the area off the Grand Banks in Newfoundland, the fish stocks were so thick that it impeded the progress of his ship. Mm -hmm. That's stunning. Uh, in 1992, the Canadian government had to put a moratorium on the cod stocks because they were virtually disappearing. Uh, what had happened in the 1950s is the implementation of deep sea dragging, uh, which means uh, you take a net uh, sometimes uh, up to 200 feet wide and uh, two and a half uh, or up to two miles long. Uh, you have uh, these That's huge two miles steel. long. That's a tremendous two length. Miles. It's enormous. Uh, they can hold up to maybe 600 tons or 60 tons of, uh, of product at once. And uh, they vacuum up all the species. The problem is they begin using the draggers during the spawning seasons when the fish are congregated. And uh, the draggers are pulled over the, uh, the ocean floor. They destroy the ecosystem in the, on the ocean floor, which is a problem. But they also destroy the spawning beds. So many of these fish have already spawned and the eggs are being destroyed. So you're wiping out the next generation year after year. And uh, this leads to a fairly rapid decline. And uh, this has been happening in both the areas I've mentioned, plus other key fishing grounds around the world. This is a major and immediate problem as to how the protein needs of hundreds of millions of people are going to be met if this one oceanic problem is not resolved fairly soon. Oh, interesting. Mr. Smith. Well, I think, thank you for asking and thank you for having us again. I think that one of the issues that stands out most to me that I find personally fascinating is the microplastic issue in terms of we have essentially created a miracle material when it comes to plastics. Mm. I really even look around the studio here and I, I consider how much of what we do would not be possible really without the invention of plastic. It is remarkable material. The Romans would have killed, right, to be able to have access to plastic and create what they do. But we're examining our environment and finding that we are having to live with a permanent material that never existed until we had actually created it. Some studies, it's very difficult to, to weed through the studies because there can be so much hysteria. There was a study in 2016 looking at perch larvae saying that when it came to microplastics, these tiny, tiny elements of plastic in the material that you wouldn't, you wouldn't see it. fish. Yeah, perch being fish, that somehow they were, they were devouring the plastic at a faster rate than their actual nutrition, like somehow it was appealing to them. The BBC described it as, it was as if uh, teenagers were eating junk food, that they were going, but it was reducing their populations, there were being fewer of them, and yet people came later and looked at that study and found it to be apparently a good bit of hogwash. It just really didn't stand up. But that said, you can look at these microscopic images of truly microscopic creatures and there's a little bit of plastic in there. Our clothes, our many brands of clothes are constantly shedding microplastics in the environment. And yet we're constantly coming up with new materials. Uh, we're organizing carbon in a variety of different ways. We're creating substances that have not existed in the universe before. Mm -hmm. And we don't fully understand the ramifications of releasing such materials into that environment. Really, plastics are sort of giving us our first look, and it, it, it's actually a little bit spooky. Hmm. Mr. Vavich, some other examples of environmental issues that are pressing today? Well, uh, I think there's uh, a number. The, uh, the whole concept of, um, 
of pollution, of course, comes into mind and its definition. Uh, but uh, the air quality uh, is uh, a major issue. I've done a lot of work in China, and I understand the, the issues they have with air quality mm-hmm. and the, the attempts to uh, improve it. Now, some of that is almost unavoidable when you're dealing with the scale of populations and people needing to keep warm and, and, and needing to uh, uh, move around. Uh, and uh, certainly, I think the governments there are doing a lot of work in order to address this. But air quality in urban areas, uh, I think, is a major issue. I'm not sure it's a it's an issue in rural areas as much. But uh, we have uh, congregated, we've designed cities in ways that require you to have automotive transport. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I can go to many European cities, and if I live in one area, it's walkable. Uh, to most of the things I need. North American cities, whether Canada or United States, that is often not the case. The cities are designed for you to need transport, be it your own or be it a taxi or bus or, or some form of transportation. I, I think that's an issue too that is a design issue. It's very difficult to uh, address and the, the, the issues and problems are going to be uh, long-lived uh, before we resolve them. Pollution, you mentioned. <clears throat> uh, let's talk about pollution for just a minute. And obviously, there we mentioned in the beginning, there are multiple types of pollution, whether we're talking about water pollution or noise pollution or light pollution or, or whatnot, waste pollution. There are all kinds of pollution. Is it possible to have a world without pollution? Or do we, do we have to accept a certain level of pollution? Mr. Smith. Well, that's, that's a very good question. I do think it depends on what you consider pollution. The fact is mankind does have an impact on its environment. Every living thing on the planet has an impact on its environment. And it'd be interesting to read the mind of a carpenter ant to see what they consider pollution in terms of their own byproducts and the rest. Uh, We are going to have our impact on the environment, but what really qualifies as actual pollution. Some things, for instance, if we were to broaden the consideration to environmental degradation, if I just get a little bit out of pollution, that's part of the confusion I see in some of the discussions is that, well, we had programs where you would go into old forests and cut down some of the older trees because the wood was more valuable and it was mm-hmm. uh, considerably the sort, of, the sort of wood that people wanted. Well, that was shut down in a variety of areas because we wanted to preserve those old trees. They've been there for a good long time. It's, it's a treasured part of the forest. But we're beginning to see an increase in wildfires in some of those areas because the trees have become so dense. And so you have some places beginning to reintroduce the concept of going in to selectively cut some of those trees. What is it that we do that qualifies as pollution? Now, when I'm walking down the street and I step on a piece of gum, as far as I'm concerned, that's pollution. But some of these things, if they're side effects of how we live our lives, how does something qualify as pollution? You know, is it because it, it gives a net negative impact on our health and our, our, our way of life? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what actually qualifies in that regard? I feel like those fundamental questions often are unanswered, mm-hmm. uh, leaving us to wrestle with things in sort of a, a false atmosphere. I'm going to give a quick uh, definition here from a very valued source by the name of Wikipedia. Uh, Obviously, it's not a source to go to all the time, but for definitions, it can be helpful. Uh, Pollution is the introduction of contaminants into the natural environment that cause adverse change. So maybe that's a a definition to to work with. But let's come back to the the question about um, balance 
I guess. And I know, Mr. Wojcic, you have some thoughts on maybe some of the trade-offs that have to be made. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, when this planet was created and man was created and put on it, uh, it was uh, expected that man would use what was on the earth as resources for living. And uh, I think we've uh, we certainly uh, not been shy to do that. <laughs> the question is, how do we leave the earth after we've used these resources? Now, there's a lot of complaint, for example, with the, the uh, huge oil sands deposit, which are roughly one-third of the world's oil deposits uh, in uh, northern Alberta, for example. A lot of complaint about using oil sands and it's destroying the environment, etc. However, most people who make those complaints haven't gone there and actually seen the reclamation. Uh, so, God created these resources for us. He tells us in the scriptures that I give you hills from which you can dig iron and copper. Uh, you can't do that without making a bit of a mess. And you uh, then dig that out and you have to smelt it. And that requires heat and other industrial processes. It is expected that we would use these resources. And it is, I don't think anyone listening would say we should use no resources whatsoever. But when we do, we leave a footprint. And that footprint is a bit of a trade-off. Now, I think we are expected as good stewards of the environment to minimize that footprint, or as in the case of the oil sands, when the mining is complete, the area that was mined is actually put back in a situation that is as good or better than it was prior to the mining operation. And I've seen some of those reclamation areas, and they are very, very pleasing to be in. And uh, as long as mankind takes that approach, the problem is, in the 1800s and 1700s, the early days of the Industrial Revolution, there was very little effort to put things back, even up into the mid-1900s. And then man became a little more aware of what are we doing here. And uh, I think there have been very laudable efforts, and uh, many states and provinces and countries have actually very good legislation today to ensure uh, that that footprint is not, uh, how would I say, a problem. But we do need to require, and during the mining process, during the smelting process, yes, there's going to be a bit of a mess there to the eyes of some. But that's essential for life. But I think what's expected on us to be good stewards of the environment is to use the product, smelt the product or process it, and do so in a way that leaves a minimal impact and uh, uh, I think that would uh, be a, a very good uh, thing to follow for many countries in the third world that are not doing that today. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, there's a balance there that Mr. Rohovich was referring to that we seem to, we seem to be struggling to find, but without any wise guidance to do so. There was a documentary years ago. Well, it's not really a documentary. It was more an art house sort of film. Those who remember called Koyas, Koyan Eskwazi. You remember that, Mr. Wahavish, by any chance? It, it was apparently an Indian word of a particular tribe that means uh, life out of balance. And I see that today. There's, there's multiple extremes. There's a, one of my favorite, I, I say one of my favorite bumper stickers. That's just the snarky part of me uh, that says, uh, Earth first will strip mine the other planets later. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, there's one side, you know, where it's just, hey, what do we want? Let's just take everything we want from the environment without any kind of consideration. But there's the other side, and thankfully it's not every environmentalist activist and such, but I've actually heard individuals say, Earth would be better off without us. Mm -hmm. And I ask, 
Well, what's the purpose of the earth? Earth was made for man to live upon. I think it's the Sierra Club, y'all could correct me if I'm wrong, says uh, leave nothing but footprints, right? So they, they really want the place to be virtually as if mankind had never existed. And yet when God told Adam and Eve to tend to the garden, the implication is that the garden would be in a different shape for their presence than it would have been left alone. There is an idea that mankind is a part of his environment, should interact with his environment, and that this earth does not serve a purpose by itself, but serves the purpose of being the home of mankind. And so there is a balance, but we certainly seem to be struggling to find it today. That, that concept of balance, I think, is key. Uh, one of the things we hear a lot, buzzwords we hear a lot, are, are green things, right. and even a green new deal. Uh, let me ask you this, and maybe Mr. Wahavich, you could jump into this first. When we talk about these green initiatives, it seems like, wow, these, these really are the direction that we need to go, but is there not also a balance even in these green energy sources and ideals? And what well, are some of maybe the, the negatives of, of the green efforts? Well, if you look at the science, um, whatever you do will require energy. And uh, so many people are uh, upset about uh, energy sources. I mean, they don't want nuclear. They, they don't understand it. They don't want hydro because it floods valleys. They don't want fossil fuels because it, it pollutes. So what's the solution? Well, the solution would be to have wind power or solar power. Well, both of those two latter solutions require an awful lot of industrial activity per unit of energy you produce. And both of them are, especially solar, uh, need to be replaced fairly frequently because those cells do wear out. And uh, wind turbines need a lot of uh, uh, supply. They also are very intermittent. Therefore, you need storage. You need massive amounts of storage of electricity, and that is done through batteries. And batteries are some of the most toxic materials we produce industrially on the planet. Uh, the use of cadmium, lithium, uh, massive amounts of graphite, uh, which have to be mined and, and for, for uh, battery uh, manufacture, and they have a lifespan. And when they're finished, what do you do with them? It takes a huge amount of energy to dispose properly and safely of those materials. And uh, so when you talk green, uh, the mining of lithium alone, for example, uh, is rendering large parts of North China dust bowls. Uh, it, it's a massive amount of work, and it, it requires huge in, environmental uh, dislocation. So we need to be thinking, I think, much more on the line of how much energy are we using effectively and efficiently, rather than get rid of those sources we don't like and replace them with something that is intermittent and requires an equally or more toxic uh, element in society than we have now. There needs to be a discussion on where the balance is in this and uh, what are we really trying to do with regard to being stewards of the environment and uh, not, not bringing a lot of pollution in. Let me push on to another topic just for a few minutes, Mr. Smith. Uh, when we look around at the environment, we, we are seeing environmental problems. What are some of the underlying causes? Mm -hmm. what, what brings about these environmental problems? Why are we seeing them today? 
Well, I think we've discussed to a certain extent the fact that we are going to have some sort of impact where we are, right? But if, if we begin delving into human characteristics, I don't want to avoid the topic. Uh, we are greedy. We just are. Human beings care about themselves more than others, more often than not. You know, it's part of the tragedy of mankind is we just can't seem to get our act together without God's own guidance. So on one hand, we've developed capitalism, which is, I, I enjoy capitalism to a great extent. I enjoyed having an iPhone and being able to buy one. At the same time, capitalism doesn't necessarily reward the broader picture. You can actually do quite a bit of damage seeking after a profit that is potentially irreversible because somehow the reversibility of damage and such isn't calculated into the bottom line. Mm -hmm. I'm not being anti-capitalist. On the other hand, you would have socialism and other, all the isms end up having their own issues and difficulties. But mankind generally doesn't see a bigger picture. And those who do believe they see a bigger picture tend to disagree with the other fellows that believe they see a bigger picture. So I will at least part of our problem down to greed, uh, self-centered focus, uh, but also, frankly, the inability to look around corners in the future. I think when they invented the, the Model T, when the car was invented, I doubt that Henry Ford and, and those who were there at the, the edge of that technology thought, boy, I bet one day Los Angeles is going to be a place you can't take in a single breath without coughing. I, I can't wait. I can't wait for my invention to create a disgusting cloud of smog that rests over an entire city of, of millions. I don't think they thought about that, but we just we can't see into the future far enough. So I would say that also plays a big role. Mm -hmm. Mr. Bahavish, did you have any thoughts there, motivators, reasons for these problems? Well, I, I think there's uh, two issues. One, certainly greed is a huge one. Um, and secondly, I would think lack of analysis. And that lack of analysis in society, I think, is somewhat, especially in the Western nations, a function of our political strategies and our political systems, where often um, governments, for whatever reason, are looking at uh, uh, terms from one election to the next, mm -hmm. instead of really working at long-term strategies, which need to be sustainable over a long period in order to drive um, initiatives that would... Uh, <clears throat> create this idea of, yes, we need development, but yes, we also need reclamation. And uh, to tie those two together and mm -hmm. in a long-term policy structure. And it's that uh, loss of a policy structure. And I would say, I think there's also a loss of um, understanding of why, uh, why man is here and uh, what is the future of mankind. Um, that understanding that we are charged with the um, maintenance of this world as well as to learn to live in it and enjoy it. We're also charged with the responsibility for its long-term uh, health. And, and so you need good long-term political strategy in order to implement that. <clears throat> uh, not long ago I was doing some research and I believe Population scientists have estimated that by the year, I think it's 2030, two-thirds of the human population will live in cities. Hmm. And we just actually had a post uh, from Face, from YouTube, asked the question about the United Nations Agenda 21 uh, and Agenda 2030. 
in the no-go zones for humans, taking away your, your land and your homes and moving people into megacities to try and uh, improve situations. And the, the question from the, the audience is, what are some of our ideas on this? How do we feel about this? How, how, how do we see this impacting the environment? Moving more people into cities. Mr. Wojtovich? Well, I'm not sure that's a really good solution. Part of the problem is, in fact, it's a negative solution. Uh, part of the problem is most cities in the world are located in agricultural zones that where it was relatively easy mm. to get a quick food supply to the city. As soon as you begin expanding that city, you are expanding that city on top of arable land, land that can actually be farmed and produce food. Uh, most of the land of the world cannot produce food. In Canada, for example, we are farming everything that can be farmed now. Yet most of the country is uninhabited. And there's a reason for that, mm -hmm. because you can't farm it. So if you take all your people and move them into mega cities, you're probably going to be expanding existing cities and uh, therefore reducing your food supply even further. This is very damaging because then you rely on many, many other secondary and tertiary sources to produce food higher levels of fertilization, higher levels of uh, um, insecticide, pesticide utilization, uh, and uh, maybe other types of uh, food sources which <laughs> we don't have the research on to know how it affects us health-wise in the long term. Synthetic meat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, uh, so I, I would think that um, and actually moving people away from their uh, more rural base also removes them from the reality of the world mm. and you end up with a lot of people who don't understand what it takes to produce food and I myself have worked with governments who <laughs> some of the representatives will argue well what do we need this agricultural land for we can buy food from somewhere else uh, <laughs> that is uh, that's seriously mm. been said to me. Mm. and uh, it is a very very short-term mm. and uh, very narrow-minded policy to try to solve the problem by the development of megacities. Interesting. I personally, I'm not anti-city. I'm not necessarily a big downtown sort of fella. I prefer my suburbs and such. And I don't think God inherently is anti-city. When he describes Jerusalem in the millennium during Christ's reign, it clearly seems to be a city. In fact, potentially quite the bustling city. Uh, in fact, Jesus Christ told his followers and such that he wanted the church that he would build to be a, a city on a hill. He was willing to use that word. At the same time, for mankind to develop what is called megacities does sound just a little bit terrifying, mm -hmm. mainly because of our lack of foresight. We just don't seem to have the capacity, even with the best of intentions, to be able to plan on such a large scale. My wife and I were actually talking, I want to say last week, maybe the week uh, before, but about some of these more totalitarian governments, say China, who are far more willing to actually engineer their people and their society, that would be fascinating to see them step up efforts to create fully engineered cities. We talked about auto-driving cars and the rest. Just to see what would come of it, I suspect in the end it wouldn't really be very good. But I personally, as long as it's not affecting me, I think it would be a fascinating thing to see. But not able to really speak about what the UN necessarily has said or not mm -hmm. said. I know sometimes that can be misunderstood. But I'm not necessarily against cities, but to build an actual, say, mega city that truly is integrated with the environment in a healthy way, in a way that doesn't encounter some of the problems that Mr. Wahavich referred to, 
I would suspect takes a level of wisdom and intelligence mm. and planning that mankind, even at our best, we have not shown any evidence that we're capable of right now. Interesting. Let's, let's go, actually, I'm going to switch gears, but piggyback, you, you said it's, it might take a level of intelligence or understanding that maybe mankind doesn't have. Well, there is a, a being in the universe who does have that kind of intelligence and understanding, and in fact, he's given us biblical principles in his word that give us insights into uh, how to deal with environmental problems, how to stem some of these environmental problems. Mr. Wahavich, can you think of any examples from the scripture, and, and certainly we'll come to you as well, Mr. Smith, examples from the scripture that give us some of these insights, either into solutions to environmental problems or into the reality that they are prophesied at the end of the age. Well, the, the Bible has a lot to say in terms of uh, man's interaction with environment, even from uh, burying uh, human refuse, for example, which is a, uh, a statute, uh, as well as um, even uh, being careful if you if a farmer comes across a bird's nest, he's to go around it, not go over it uh, if that bird is nesting. So there was a, a, a care uh, that is principled in Scripture. Uh, that you can extrapolate from and uh, learn that we are to be, as I mentioned, good stewards of the environment. Which is, um, I'll just point out real quickly, that, that stewardship concept is in Genesis chapter 2, where God yes. actually told Adam and Eve to do that. Correct. And, and so I, I think that's the principle that we have to follow. Um, how this would uh, relate to the nature and how we use the environment in a government run by by God here on the earth, as is prophesied, we have to wait and see. Um, I, I, I think the, the term megacity might be a bit misleading, because I think the definition of megacity is anything over 15 million uh, on the earth right now. And, and there may be certainly cities, they may be smaller and uh, more environmentally uh, integrated. But the whole issue of, um, of disposal of waste uh, in the Bible is is an interesting one, and I think that gives us some clue as to the fact that we use the existing environment that has been created mm. in order to deal with a lot of the <clears throat> you know, byproducts of life uh, which do exist. Uh, certainly we know, for example, that um, God did create uh, things like the water hyacinth and the cattail, which are absolutely remarkable at recycling everything from heavy metals uh, to um, to getting rid of um, various uh, biological uh, uh, problems, uh, bacteria, etc., that are harmful, uh, and it is uh, able to purify a water supply. They all sit at the bottom of drainage basins, which is quite remarkable, and uh, they do that work. Integrating some of these things, as has been done in Humboldt, Saskatchewan, for example, where they actually put a cattail processing uh, zone in for sewage disposal, mm -hmm. uh, which worked remarkably well and uh, at a low-cost basis. There could be many, many of these things that have been designed that we are simply not yet aware of or how they function mm -hmm. uh, that would create a beautiful environment, uh, one which is um, very pleasant and yet able to sustain a growing population of, of humanity. I think if you do look in the Old Testament, and there are many principles, uh, you consider even just the land Sabbaths, 
even the mere existence of a, a law that says the land must rest every seven years and for there to be a cycle emphasizes a frame of mind that if you're approaching this world with a mindset that I'm going to wring it dry of everything it has, mm. you're not really able to do that when there's divine law in place saying you need to let this land lie fallow for for a seven for a year you're not allowed to try to continue to to pull from it mm -hmm. that it's it doesn't change the mentality that this place is here for you this is your home i've given you this as a resource but does force one to step back and not give into this idea that we want to completely drain it of every possible resource it has as quickly as we can and maximize its yield beyond some sort of hell. So there are laws given to mankind by the creator of this world that would help us manage our environment better. But I would just add the one thing that the one thing that's lacking most in all of this, I think, is simply the active involvement of that creator to begin with. It's one thing, even if mankind were given, because we do have Bibles, the, the list of these rules, would that really be sufficient? If you look at the Garden of Eden, what Adam and Eve essentially said was, you know, God, we don't need you. We're going to manage all of this on our own. We want to do things our way, not your way, us. And Frank Sinatra, please go find something else to do. So even if we had the list of rules, what we wouldn't have is not only the active continuing instruction, a God that could highlight to us what the cattail does and highlight some of these things, but also his manifold blessings, a God who actually claims the authority to control the weather for your good and to nurture you uh, as a divine being who's actually involved in your lives. So, and that really isn't a matter of getting our policy straight or our particular practices, that really is a spiritual approach. Uh, and it's a matter of actually bothering to seek the God with our goodwill, with our intentions, and actually with uh, our repentance. Mm -hmm. well, let me just ask, uh, as we conclude the program now, and it sounds like you almost may have done it for us, <laughs> but do either of you have any additional takeaway or, or an additional takeaway that you'd like to leave the audience with today? Mr. I think, as Mr. Smith mentioned, the land Sabbath uh, rule, for example, is a very interesting law. Uh, it's uh, a law that you just couldn't keep the land Sabbath any year. It had to be in a very specific year, in a 50-year cycle, and it was integrated with the national laws. And uh, whether or not it had anything to do with soil fertility is one thing, because your double crop came in the sixth year, at the end of the cycle. If it were purely a fertility issue, we'd see that response in the first year. What it was saying is, I am your God and I'm taking care of you. And you have this miracle that's happening every, in the sixth year, every seven years. And not, not only that, but you can read, the food was miraculously preserved until the next crop came in. It was a mirror of that whole miracle mm -hmm. of the manna that was in, 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 in Israel as they escaped from Egypt. Uh, and this kind of principle that you know, that there's a great being guiding you and guarding you and looking after you is going to affect your thinking. It's going to affect how you relate to the environment. It's going to affect how you view the creation that has been given to us to sustain and to care for. And we are going to look at the world very differently. We'll also look at each other very differently. And, and that concept that we are a function of a great being's intervention and uh, we are looking after his creation that is given to us for our benefit. And I think that changes the perspective of how we view the world and its resources. That's a very different 
perspective, very different point of view, but really important. Mr. Smith. Well, I was going to say as a takeaway to avoid the two ditches, but I really think there's three ditches. One would be the ditch that it's mankind uber allus, uh, let us take all we can and just rely on our ingenuity to solve all of our problems in the future, sort of borrowing from the future, if you will. But on the other hand, the second ditch, to think that we somehow owe the earth something, like somehow the earth is more important than humanity. And exactly, and that somehow we, the earth would be better off without us, that doesn't make any sense. Who would be here to see if it's even better off? But then the third ditch is that somehow we're intelligent enough and smart enough and wise enough and have learned enough to figure out everything by ourselves that even if we embrace the idea that we need to be good stewards that of ourselves we can somehow figure that out i think of individuals who with good intention have introduced a new species into an area because they thought it would bring balance in a healthy way only to find that species to take over and, and ravenously begin consuming the land all the intentions were good but the true knowledge and wisdom to pull those good intentions into some kind of action good action just simply weren't there so avoiding all of those three ditches if you will then i would encourage us to be mindful that the earth is our home and we should take care of our home mm -hmm. but not forget that it truly is here to serve us and that we have a God above who is capable of guiding us in the right direction if only we as a people would reach out to him and learn. Okay, thank you. Mr. Smith, thanks for joining us here in the studio today. Mr. Bavich, thank you for Skyping in and being a part of this important discussion today. We thank are you. seeing growing environmental problems in the world today as we've been talking about. A number of these are politicized, yet many are exacerbated by human action and inaction. When we break God's laws and statutes, there are negative consequences. <clears throat> yet, as the Bible clearly shows, when we choose to obey God's principles, there are inherent blessings in those choices. And as we've just talked about, inherent blessings because God is involved. Mankind can improve many aspects of the environment, but it will take choosing to take responsibility for his actions. It requires taking a long view perspective and avoiding decisions based solely on greed, as we've talked about. When we follow God's principles of dressing and keeping our environment, of being good stewards, we automatically have cleaner water. We have fewer human waste issues. We have less pollution. We have healthier crops and healthier animal species. And we aid the land in growing and even in recovering. The Bible outlines some powerful and simple actions God intended to be used to protect the environment. One day, when Christ returns, the whole world will be taught, and it will understand and it will apply these powerful principles. To learn more about this topic, we invite you to listen to or read our article called Squandering the Blessings of the Sea. It's available for download at Tomorrow's World, and it is written by Mr. Stuart Bohovich. <clears throat> also, we include you to, or invite you to dig deeper into the Bible with us and look for some of the answers to today's big questions. And to do that, join us again next week at TW Now. Next week, we plan to delve into the question or the issue of the return of paganism. Please be sure to join us. We also invite you again to subscribe, like, or share today's program. We'll see you next week.